electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the great debate in the markets right now is a retest of the October lows in the cards or not. Big names weighing in on both sides of that critical question today. So what do we do? We take it to the investment committee. And joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, and Jenny Harrington. Let's check the markets. Uh, certain for direction a little bit today. S&P is trying to hold on to that 4,000 level. That's one of the key questions we're trying to answer today, Joe. Is the rally ending? Are we going to retest the lows? Can we hold on to 4,000 in the S&P? Is it all about yields? <laughs> which are moving lower today. That's why the stock market seems to be a little more balanced today than it certainly was yesterday. All right, so let's place in context exactly the type of market that we have. You've done a great job talking about this, and Josh really explained it well yesterday, talking about the algorithmic impact. Since November 10th, there have been 65 trading days. There has only been one day in which the S&P has closed outside 3,800 to 4,200. So we are in a period of consolidation like we have not witnessed in this market for the last 15 years. So what am I against? I'm against making these grandiose calls. The market's going to make new highs above 4,800. The market's going to go to 3,000. Let's break out of the range first. How do you break out of the range? You get yields to stop moving higher. And believe it or not, the NASDAQ, which I'm not long, the NASDAQ is what's going to have to take you higher. Now, last point. NASDAQ challenge, a 200-day moving average this morning, held perfectly. It's bouncing right now from that level. Let's see what it does from there. But it's got to be the NASDAQ. So how, Jenny, do you get yields, to Joe's point, to stop moving higher when, you know, Bullard was on this morning on Squawk saying he sees rates hitting 5.375. You've got UBS today or, or City saying, yep, three more hikes are coming. Clarida was on, two more hikes for certain. And maybe optionality for the third, but I think the street's starting to come around to the idea that March, May, and June is going to be in play, unless something dramatic happens between now and then. Yeah, so I think it's actually really simple. We need the passage of time, and we're not going to get rates to stop going higher without simply time passing. We need to give the Fed time. We need to give supply chains time to continue to normalize. We need earnings to revert. We need to get back to normal levels. We need wait. We need um, wage growth to stop spiking. We need employment to reach a normal level. And at that point, the Fed can take their foot off the pedal, and, and interest rates don't need to keep going higher. But the only way to get there is to let time pass. And to Joe's point, let things consolidate. So I think that's where we are, and we're stuck until that happens. We just, we need to get from here to like nine months from here really badly. I was going to say, so Josh, does that sound like we're in, in sort of no man's land until we find out whether there's going to be a, a hike in June? And what, if any, you know, leading indicators there are from the Fed that that really would be it? So there's two games that you could play. You could play the game where you focus on the S&P 500 index and related ETF 
and you wait for the FANG stocks and the big consumer discretionary weights to get back in gear and you, you kind of like, you know, focus on the overall market. Uh, that's not going to be a lot of fun right now. The better game to play is to ask yourself if we're really going into a recession, why is every industrial stock making either a 52-week high or an all-time high? Why are international stocks doing so well? Uh, wh why, why are there uh, companies that are doing their own thing and not sitting around waiting for Apple and Amazon to bounce? That's the more interesting game. And I got to tell you, uh, as an older person, which I think I am now, I'm not sure. No. We have many disadvantages. One of the advantages that we have is we remember these stocks. Younger investors have no idea what any of these companies, industrials, materials, they, they're not on Robinhood. The, the media has covered technology and consumer discretionary ad nauseum for 10 years, and with good reason. Those were the biggest stocks doing the most and, and releasing products, et cetera, et cetera. That's also where Wall Street raised the most capital uh, into, into anything related to tech, media, telecom. That's what everyone follows. But let me show you a couple of charts because this is where the puck is going. And this is where I think our viewers need to start learning some new tickers, for, for God's sake. Take a look at Russell 1000 industrial companies making 52-week highs in the last two weeks. There are so many. I'm just going to give you a couple, and we'll see how fast uh, Vin and Patty are on the trigger. Take a look at Clean Harbors, CLH. This is a $7 billion market cap. The stock acts like a wildebeest. It does not care. It does not pay attention to what's going on in the S&P. Ingersoll Rand, IR. Take a look at this platypus uh, making a, a, a new year high. Uh, ACOM, ACM. Look at this chart. There's nothing they broke in the last tackle. There are no sellers. There are so many examples of those. Parker Hannafin, Packar, Rockwell Automation. These are the stocks. Don't worry what's about. The don't worry then? about 25 what's, what's basis points, 50 that? base points. What's, so what's the message to you? I just gave it to you. And to our we viewers in those moves. <laughs> what's that? The message. The message. <laughs> the, me <laughs> the message is learn a new game. The, the other. The other game. The Fang game is boring. It's not. That's. It's. It, that's not Wu Tang right now. This is where money is being made. These are the new stuff. And here's why. And actually, Savita at Bank of America did a really good piece on this. Focus on industries that have been starved of capital for the last 10 years. Energy, obvious, industrials, manufacturing. These are not areas where Wall Street has raised a trillion dollars. And as a result, we've got shortages. We've got more demand than there is supply. There's, a, there's an energy transition story here that underlies the whole thing. It's not reliant on the Fed. There, there's, a, there, there's just a need for the products these companies make, and they're cyclicals. And I know it's counterintuitive. Why would I buy cyclicals if the economy is slowing down? Well, here's a question. Is it? Like, is the whole economy slowing down? Or is Netflix subscriber base slowing down? So that's what's happening, and I, I think we should be pivoting the types of stocks that we talk about here uh, because of that. Jimmy, um, you know, it's a more selective game, perhaps, that you need to play. Maybe that's the, the overriding message in what Josh brings us. But, I mean, the jury is still out as to whether the economy is going to slow more dramatically than it has. Jury's still out as to whether we're going to have a recession or not. 
and whether those stocks that Josh just showed, which were all moving higher and certainly seem to be getting a little bit more of a lift as we, you know, you guys were, were talking about them, whether those are going to be lasting places to make money. We'll have to find out. There's always a question, Scott. It's, the answer is never 100% clear. Uh, I agree very strongly with what Josh said. It's consistent with something I've been saying for about a year and a half now, which is that the market is going through a transition in leadership from growth to value. Uh, value sectors, traditionally industrials, like Josh was talking about, energy, materials, financials. And, and you know why. You, you know my reason why. It's supply chain onshoring and infrastructure spending. It's coming home to roost. And it should, and it's going to last for a couple of years. It's not just that these stocks are cheaper. It's not just that they've been unloved. It's where the actual economic growth is poised to come from for at least the next two years. Doesn't mean the technology is dead and going to go down, but it does mean that it's not going to be the leadership. Um, so I agree with what Josh said. And as far as the market overall, for those people who are fixated on that, I think we've got to take the experience that Josh was talking about and use that to gain some perspective. We've had two weeks of the markets being wobbly. Why is that? It's because of January economic data that gave a hint that maybe inflation is not going to come down in a straight line. Guess what? Nothing ever moves in a straight line. You had three great months of inflation reports. You have one the only month, reason. January, where it blips up. And let's see what February brings. We got to see it's what February brings. Reason. That's another three weeks of waiting. It's it's the also the idea that the economy is as strong as you have suggested that it is. And that's a two edged sword, of course, because, yes, you like the fact that the economy is as strong as it is, but it only keeps the bullards of the world talking about how high they need to take rates and maybe how long they need to keep them there. It only keeps those projections, Jimmy, of further rate hikes, you know, adding another one in June. That's I, I the like, other part of the story. I like what you just said, Scott. It is a two-edged sword. So you got to pick which side of that sword you're on. You have to, okay? You can't just you can't just hang out in the middle. I guess you can, but I'm not going to do that. People know me, right? And on that two-edged sword, I will take economic growth. I will take labor market strength. I will take financial market financial system stability all day long. You know, Five and three eighths, whatever. Is that that much different than five and one eighths, which is what the market at least has priced in? To me, it's really no difference. Well, that's why, Jenny, largely the, the market has taken Bullard in stride today. Again, I mean, it, he's not a voting member, but he's an influential one and his words matter. And there weren't any great tape bombs today. He talked about the strength in the economy stronger than we thought, have a good shot of beating inflation in 23 without major damage to the labor market. So when he throws out a 5375, it's largely where the market has gotten to. Now, the stock market is in the process of trying to adjust to maybe a reality that it wasn't necessarily prepared for, but it's maybe going to get there as well. Well, I think you're bringing up a really important point, which is what Bullard told us today is that it's basically already there. It's already anticipated, right? And so 537, I would argue that we've already been anticipating that range. What I think we've been talking around and not addressing directly so far today, Joe, when you were saying before we need to break this trend, and Jim, when you're saying like, here are the problems that, that's, that have been going on, what we haven't really talked about is that really what we need is we need to get earnings to get back to growth. And how do we get them to get back to growth? Again, this is the passage of time. So we need earnings where they are now to consolidate, plateau, 
and then actually start to grow again. And that's not where we are. And so when we talk about really why the market was wobbly, the real reason is, is that we just had the worst recessionless earnings season in 24 years. Well, you're not painting a great scenario, though, for stocks then in the, in the near term. You know it's painting? more of that no man's land yeah, idea. Because it's going to take, to your point, the time mm -hmm. to get earnings back to a, a level of growth that justifies where multiples can go in the stock market. And, and that is exactly where Josh nailed it, where like if we're in no man's land, you don't want to play the S&P game. What you want to play is the game where you're saying, okay, this company in particular is growing significantly. I want to invest in that company. But if we're in no man's land, then the S&P just kind of bops along at best and does not much, but there's opportunity in there. And the opportunity comes because as that market cycles along, you're getting plenty of stocks that bottom out and offer really compelling valuations. But then, because it's tricky, we all need to learn a new vocabulary, right? The FANG, as Josh said, FANG is not going to be the leadership. You had to change your playbook. You really had to do that about a year and a half ago, but you still need to do that now. And you need to get a new vocabulary, choose some new stocks, and find where actual earnings growth is coming I, I mentioned, from. Joe, at the top of the program, this yep. d great debate over whether the October lows are going to be in play again or not. And I can't think of a greater transformation, maybe you can call it that, over the last, say, 8 to 10, 12 months than you've gotten from Marco Kalanovic of J.P. Morgan, who tried to remain as mm -hmm. bullish as he possibly could in the face of negativity and then saw the writing on the wall and definitely turned more and more negative, at least in the near term, on stocks. He says the October lows are in play. Quote, we do think first we get the sell off here now. Perhaps we retest the lows that we saw last year. And at that point, perhaps the Fed gets the message and starts cutting rates or signaling cutting rates. And only at that point, we think you're going to have a more sustainable rally. I want you to address that. That's what Marco said yesterday uh, in overtime. And look, he's an influential guy. And these are provocative thoughts. It doesn't make sense to me that we are going to raise rates only to have to cut them at some point. So do I think. Isn't, the, that, isn't that what always happens, though? Well, no, not necessarily. They raise rates, they, they put you off a cliff, and then they got to cut rates to save the day. No, I, I disagree with that. I, th I think a lot of times that we've fallen off a cliff, there's been exogenous shocks, there's been extreme leverage built up within the financial services industry uh, that therefore has created the calamity. Well, I don't mean some which calamity. You have to cut. I'm not talking right. about a calamity. I'm talking about the Fed pushing you into a recession by doing what they're doing and perhaps doing too much, just breaking something. It doesn't mean they're destroying it. They're just breaking something. But then on the other side of that, of course, you get the rate cuts that come Look, in. Let, he let, says let that me. is going to still get you to 4,200 by the end of the year. It's not like he is, you know, decidedly negative over the next 10 months mm -hmm. uh, of the year. It's just going to be kind of messy right. on the road to 4,200. You're going to get all of that stuff at play. I'm a little bit more optimistic than what Marco is describing. So, so basically, he's telling investors that we're first going to go down, and then we're going to end up basically in the same spot we are right now. So yeah. that sounds like a great opportunity, ultimately, when we do go down. I don't know if you revisit the October lows. I, I, think, I, so. I think that we've built up enough in terms of repairing, and to your point, through the passage of time, that we'll be able to stay above those lows. I also think there's areas of the market, to Josh and Jim's point, where you could find the opportunity where stocks are near highs. Hershey, I know it's a consumer staple. That's near an all-time high. Copart, it's an industrial name, pressing towards an all-time high. W.W. Granger. So what I'm trying to do is build upon what Josh is saying, where you're introducing new names into the conversation that are working well. Jimmy knows the steel industry real well. Take a look at the chart of Nucor. In particular, as the market has declined in the last couple of days, that's remained remarkably resilient. So, listen, can the market go to the lows? You never want to dismiss that. 
That always can happen. I'd be somewhat surprised unless there was an exogenous shock. I mean, the technicians are trying to, you know, game it out too, Josh. You know, you're, you're right at 4,000 on the S&P. So Mark Newton over at Fundstrat says if the S&P undercuts 3945, so you got 50 points or so to worry about, then he might fear a larger decline might be in store as well, although he does say we are nearing an appealing area to expect some stabilization and even a reverse back higher. He, he's been one of the more bullish people of late. So you juxtapose that against Kalanovic and what's your takeaway? I'm going to say something that's very unpopular with my friends in the technical analysis community. This is not a market for that. For, for, for that. And, you know, I think technicians really make their bones in the eyes of investors or advisors uh, in trending markets, downtrend or uptrend. This is this is like uh, this is, you know, as Jenny said, no man's land. And, uh, you know, we're range bound at best. And, you know, the technicians you see us break 4,100, they get excited, then that fails. And now all of a sudden we're talking about October lows again. I, I just feel like uh, you're going you're gonna to cut yourself to pieces in a whipsaw market like this if you're overly focused on the, a trend that really just doesn't exist. And yeah. to Joe's point, break out one direction or the other. Break out to the upside or break out to the downside. And then show me some charts. Right now, there's really very little... I think that technical analysis has to offer unless your time frame is a swing trade. Like if you're one to three day person, it's different. For my purposes, mm -hmm. there's nothing, there's really nothing going on and uh, it's, it's just chop. And so I, so, I try not to uh, get overly focused on that. Let's, let's talk about another breakout because I think you could make the case that maybe NVIDIA today and the earnings that are coming in overtime and closing bell today, we're going to walk you right up to that. What really seems to be a critical moment, maybe the most important earnings report of this late season, just given that stock, Josh, is up 50 percent year to date. The Nasdaq itself has had a huge move. So there's a lot of pressure on, on this company, given all of the hype around AI and everything else that has driven this stock to where it is in a reasonably short period of time. They better deliver. They better deliver for, the, for themselves. They better deliver for what the Nasdaq has done over the last six weeks, too. So here's the problem with NVIDIA, and I don't, you know, I don't give advice on this show. I just talk about myself. If I were not in the <laughs> stock right now, I would, not, I would not be a buyer ahead of the earnings tonight. And here's why. NVIDIA's future is so bright, you have to wear shades. However, the intermediate term is still going to be a challenge because enterprise spending is probably going to continue to underperform this year. The expectation for NVIDIA's revenue night, uh, tonight is $6.02 billion. That's versus $7.64 billion uh, in Q4 last year. So this slowdown is, is very well telegraphed. Everyone understands this. The problem is, uh, by the way, earnings $0.81 cents, uh, versus $1.32 a year ago. So everyone understands this is not going to be a banner quarter for NVIDIA. But the stock has been bid up on AI hype. And it should be, maybe. Um, but it's, we're not yet in the quarter where they're going to be able to translate the excitement over AI into showing us a ramp in data center spend. That's a second half story or early 24 at best. So maybe this, the, the rally in the stock is pricing that in in advance. That's possible. And maybe we could sustain that, that enthusiasm. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't guess that'll be the case. So I don't think you're going to see the ramp in data center 
you know, AI-related rampant data center that's going to reward the people who have just started buying the stock this year. So I've, I, like, I keep saying no man's land, but that's where I think we are right now. We're in the midst of a, a trough in gaming. Like, gaming is going to be $1.6 billion, um, uh, according to consensus. That's versus three spot $42 billion in this quarter last year. Like, it's not really the, the sweet spot. Uh, for this name. So it's tough. It's gone up a lot. I would not run mm -hmm. into it. And if you're wrong and it explodes after earnings tonight, so what? You buy it a little bit higher. Um, and know, that, Jimmy, that's where I am with it. You, you sold it a, a while back. I, I feel like this is now, just at this moment, given what's happened with these kind of high growth and higher valuation names, that <clears throat> this is the most important one outside of the mega caps themselves, outside of the Amazons and the Alphabets, the Metas and the Apples and Microsoft. You get, you get my, my idea here. I feel like this is the most important one now. It's rallied so much. It's maybe not the mega, mega cap, but it's big enough. It has a lot of fanfare and frenzy around it. It's been part of that high growth move that you've had this year. It's carried the NASDAQ in, in large respects, along with the Teslas of the world and some others. So how do you see it today? Look, I, I do think it's very important, Scott. I don't think it's the end all and be all. We're obviously in a time in the markets where it's very light in terms of earnings in general, so there's going to be a lot of fixation on this. But, uh, you know, for me, I am overweight in semis. You're right. I sold NVIDIA. I didn't like the price. That's a personal choice I make. I hope, I hope uh, Josh makes a lot of money. But here's the thing I would remark overall. The semi space, not just NVIDIA, has done very well off of the October lows. And when I look at a chart of the semis, you know, put up the SMH, right? You've got a series of higher highs and higher lows. So what I'm really looking for in NVIDIA right now is what is the response overall and does it transfer through to the SMH? So maybe it's too high priced. You know, maybe some of the things Josh is saying, maybe temporarily it goes down. But does that affect Qualcomm? Does that affect NXP? Does that affect Broadcom? Those are the questions I'd like to see answered tomorrow. And my suspicion is that NVIDIA can move separately from the semiconductor space overall, which, as I'm saying right now, does have a lot of positive attributes. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Let's, let's squeeze in a break. We'll come back with our chart of the day. It's a big earnings gainer today after beating the street. We do have ownership on the committee. We'll give you that trade when we come back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report.
That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Let's do our chart of the day now. It's Palo Alto Network surging today after the company posted better than expected quarterly results. It's the best day since August. Jenny Harrington, you own it. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, I need a little. On a day, I was going to say on a day where we're going to get to <laughs> when Intel disappoints you. Right. Palo Alto saves you. And thank God Palo Alto has a nice big <laughs> three plus percent position in our growth portfolio. Um, but this is interesting because it is exactly what we've been talking about, which is there are a few stocks out there, right? You don't want to own the S&P maybe, but there are stocks out there that are delivering really significant growth. So they said their billings are up 26 percent and they actually increased their guidance for billings going forward. I think it was in the range of 20 to 22 percent and they raised it to 20 to 23 percent for the um, for the year ahead. They're, they've got a five and a half percent free cash flow yield. And as corporations are kind of cash constrained or having a little bit tougher time, they need to spend on cybersecurity. So this is one of those spots where you know, like it or not, money has to flow to cybersecurity. And this is the behemoth in the space. I know there's others out there, but the reason we own Palo Alto versus others is because of that free cash flow yield. We need to own things that are free cash flow positive, And this market's rewarding that. You feel like you, you shouldn't have gotten out of this name. You used to love this name. I used to love the name. I did. Uh, and maybe I think you're in and out of it more than... First of all, congratulations on the trade. It's a great trade. I yeah. used to own CrowdStrike. Seriously, about Palo Alto. I'm out of CrowdStrike right at this level here. Uh, Fortinet, CrowdStrike, Palo Alto. Those are the three that you want to go to for cyber, uh, cyber exposure. Of the three, I think I like CrowdStrike the best. Why? Because I think ultimately when you see the turnaround in the market, CrowdStrike, because of its high beta nature, and its ability to capture market share. And let's understand that company has a significant amount of, of market share gain in front of them. Mm-hmm. I think they're the one that will see the most significant performance gains once the cycle turns positive again. So I've got my eye on CrowdStrike to re-enter that trade. I've got no problem trading around it. I'll enter back into it at some point relatively soon. Okay, so Goldman mentions it positively today as well. Josh Brown, I think people know at this point you you own CrowdStrike too. Uh, Yeah, take a look at the last four earnings reports for CrowdStrike. Uh, January of 22, they beat by 48%. April of 22, they beat by 33%. They beat by 32% in July. And then in October, the last quarter they reported, they beat by 26.5%. This is a company that routinely outperforms expectations, and expectations are lofty. So it's, it's no mean feat what they've been able to pull off. And the way that you do that is with execution. So I think George Kurtz is one of the best, uh, one of the best ex- executors in the space. Um, and it doesn't mean you always get a positive reaction. Uh, in the stock, but I think when you want to be in a name that's got the ability to continue to take share, as Joe alluded to, um, that's this name. So it's not cheap. Sadly, it's never been cheap. By the time it's Mm -hmm. cheap, you probably don't want to be in it. Um, This is a high momentum, high beta stock. You either choose that you're going to live by the sword and die by the sword, or you choose not to. I've chosen that I'm willing to accept the volatility here, because I think the story has years to play out. Yeah, stock's up. 
stocks moving higher. Why do you choose Palo Alto over the others? And by the way, I mean, the street's gushing about Palo Alto today. Morgan Stanley, what more do you want? Dan Ives over at Wedbush calls it Aaron Judge-like, uh, mm -hmm. the quarter that they delivered, and the stock is obviously reacting as such. It it's so easy. It's profitable in a way that the other two aren't. So CrowdStrike still doesn't have earnings, right? Sure. Fortinet does. One of them does, one of them doesn't. But they're not free cash flow positive. And so I need that free cash flow yield to become, you know, to be able to invest in something. What's super interesting on what happened to Palo Alto today, and probably the reason it's up so much, is their gap reported earnings actually are high enough that they could finally be included in the S&P 500. So I think that's driven some, like, event-driven funds into it, too. But their profitability is a really big deal. Oh, interesting. Okay, good stuff. Still ahead. The latest trends in ETF investing and during February. As you know, we are celebrating black heritage through the stories of some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is halftime committee member Jason Snipe of Odyssey Capital Advisors. By definition, being a minority is fewer than, but not necessarily less than. You know, as a young professional, I thought I was, I needed to assimilate into the rooms and teams and boardrooms uh, that I participated in, but realized early on that diversity is a superpower and is additive. So I encourage you to show up as your authentic self. There's so much value in that. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Back to the halftime report. I'm Bertha Coombs, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden is in the air, heading back to Washington. He left Poland about an hour ago, briefly stumbling on the stairs to Air Force One. The White House says in a meeting earlier today with the leaders of NATO's eastern flank, Biden repeated Washington's ironclad commitment to the principle that an attack on one member of the alliance is an attack on all members. The Taliban's acting Commerce Minister tells Reuters it has set up an investment consortium which firms from Russia with firms from Russia and Iran saying it is important to have a normal business relationship with Russia because Afghanistan imports a lot of its wheat and oil from that country. And in Maine, the winner of January's $1.4 billion Mega Millions jackpot has claimed the prize. Now, we know the lucky ticket was sold at that gas station, but that's about it. The winner wants to remain anonymous and use a limited liability company to collect the money after choosing the $724 million cash payment instead of an annuity for the larger amount seems like that person or people, they've done their homework, Scott. Back to you. Yeah. 
Probably so. Bertha, thank you, Bertha Coombs. All right, now to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello there, Scott. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. The ETF world, like much of the investing world, is trying to understand what impact artificial intelligence and chat GPT is going to have on investing, from picking stocks to how it will impact employment in the investing world. Joining us now, an expert in using AI and investing, Art Amador, runs the AI-powered ETF. The symbol is AIEQ. It's an actively managed fund of stocks that are selected with a model that uses artificial intelligence. Art, the investing world is trying to wrap its head around ChatGPT, but you have been using AI for years. I've known you for years doing this. What's the similarity between what you're doing and ChatGPT, and what's the difference? And is ChatGPT some kind of watershed moment for investing? Absolutely. This is an incredible milestone. Uh, so much so that I had to ask ChatGBT, what is the future of investing? And the interesting thing is, its first point is that it's technology-enabled investing. And then it goes on to conclude that the future of investing will be shaped by new technologies. Now, where it falls short is it doesn't tell you which technologies, and it sure as heck isn't ready to build you a portfolio yet, but here at Equibot, that's exactly what we've been doing for the past six years. We've partnered with IBM to understand right, which critical signals are important for moving over 5,000 U.S. publicly traded companies. And that's what we're doing within AIQ, the ETF. Yes. So what are the implications for investing about all this? So, I, for example, the iPhone launched a $100 billion business, multi-hundred billion dollar business from the app market. That's an after effect. Is, is chat GPT going to launch multi-billion dollar businesses or is this going to put a lot of people out of work on Wall Street or both? Uh, no, not necessarily. So chat GPT is more of a productivity tool, right? It's gonna allow people to do things uh, more efficiently, uh, more quickly. Uh, and essentially that's what we're trying to do here at Ecubot is apply the AI machine learning process to investing so that things can be done more efficiently and quickly yeah. and uncover patterns that wouldn't be recognizable by you know, the naked eye. Um, so I'm really excited. We're still yeah. in the first inning of, as it relates to AI. And so ChatGBT, uh, Ecubot and AIEQ, uh, its best days are still ahead, uh, which is, you know, which is what gets me really excited. Yeah, we're going to uh, talk about the implications for investing and whether ChatGPT and your models are going to replace human analysts because you do a lot of your model does a lot, of, a lot of what human analysts do. We're going to talk a lot about that. Art, we're going to be back with you. Much more on ETFs and artificial intelligence coming up on ETF Edge at 1.15 p.m. Eastern Time. Art's going to be joined by Bill Studebaker. He's the head of the Global Robotics and Automation ETF. He's also very well versed in using AI in investing and in the marketplace. That's ETFEdge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. Scott, back to you. Market stuff, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Up next, Intel slashing its dividend in a very big way. You know Jenny owns it, so we are going to get her thoughts next. Trade my trade. Send us your latest stock move. Okay, we are back on the halftime report. Let's talk Intel. All right, Jenny, ah. let's just let's do this, okay? Uh, because they cut their dividend by a yeah. lot. What Bob Pisani described as extraordinary. It's rare to cut a dividend to begin with, but the size of which they did is also noteworthy. I 
actually think that's not really it. The size which, with which they cut it really 65%. isn't that. 65%? Yeah, but companies do that. It's more like Intel, who's paid a dividend for so long and has been such a consistent yeah. dividend payer and grower. It's more of that. I think what's more upsetting is the interruption of that long-term dividend history. Now, a couple things. This is not in our dividend portfolio. I fully expected the dividend cut. This is in our discipline growth portfolio. So on that, I'll give this response in three thoughts that hopefully appeals to you guys out there too. One, from a portfolio management perspective, thank God for Palo Alto. Two, from a um, philosophical perspective, I heard a really interesting quote last week, and I think it was attributed to Ken Griffin, but I'm not sure, where it said, invest with conviction, but hold that conviction lightly. So when we invested in Intel in 2020 at about $60 a share, we invested with conviction. Unfortunately, we didn't hold that conviction lightly enough. We obviously should have sold this a long time ago. But now I'll get to the third part of it, which is pragmatic. So where do you stand today? Today you stand with a stock that's got a $26 share price, earning $2 a share. Um, they still earn $60 billion a year, which, by the way, is twice of what, sorry, they don't earn. Um, they have revenues of $60 billion a year, which is twice that of what NVIDIA um, has in revenues. And they've got 80% market share in PCs, 75% market share in servers. This mm -hmm. isn't a dead company. It's just a company that's working through significant challenges. What if it's a dead stock? Oh, it Why already has been. It? Why don't you just sell it? Because I think there is the hope and the expectation. I will take all help and support no, I can get. So please, yes. I want to hear from you first. But the reason is, is because we think that $2 of current earnings gets back to $5 a share. And as they work through inventory issues, as they build their fabs, if they get back to $5 a share, you have a stock that's trading on forward earnings of five times. And that is not logical for a company that is significant, that is relevant, that is valid, and produces that much in terms of revenue. Is it a hope and a prayer, or yes. is it realistic, <laughs> Joe? Because ultimately, that's what the decision okay. has to be. So, so here's what's interesting about this. I think of Disney. I think of Salesforce. Why not Intel? Why not Activism in Intel? And that would get me interested in this stock. What? It's probably yeah. to get the company to do, to do the right things with the balance sheet, to get the correct financial engineering and to get some fresh concepts and ideas into a company that was for decades a leader in its industry and in the market. Mm -hmm. It's not irreversible that it can't be turned around, but it needs, I believe, new ideas. The idea of activism. It's an interesting of idea. Activism in Intel, the same way that we saw it in Disney and mm -hmm. Salesforce, mm -hmm. that would get me interested like in the stock. There's two issues at play here. That you could call that a hope. Well, I, I'm saying it feels like Innovation, the issues are innovation and execution. Activists can deal with execution, they can't deal with innovation. They don't all of a sudden snap yeah. their fingers, Josh, they, let me go to you, because I know you have thoughts on this too, um, and decide that the company is able to innovate today better than they were able to do yesterday, or they, they can gain back market share that they've lost over a, you know, a steady drip period of time like this company has. But what's, what's your take here? One of the most important lessons that investors can learn is that execution matters more than valuation in some industries and innovation and understanding the product roadmap. These things trump valuation most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Jenny's talking about 80% market share in PCs. Like, let's like telling me they dominate the hula hoop market. It, this is right now. I, I'm not saying it's impossible to turn around. But right now, this is Xerox. And I want to tell you why execution matters more. Five years ago, NVIDIA was selling at 50 times earnings. Intel was selling at 23 times earnings. 
NVIDIA was twice as quote unquote expensive. If you were focused on primarily on dividends in the rearview mirror or valuation, here's how that would have played out. Over the last five years, NVIDIA is up 245%, up 400% at its peak in, uh, in 21. Intel's stock over the last five years is down 35%. NVIDIA has absolutely crushed Intel in every conceivable way. And again, that comes down to execution and innovation. So we, we could go double or nothing. We could, we, could, we could act like all of a sudden Intel's gonna start out innovating, or we could just nod to the fact that in the history of technology, there have been many companies that faded and never and and really never regained the the lead that they once had technologically. And look, we could talk about Compaq and Dell and Hewlett Packard. Um, many of these things are still around. They're just a shell of their former selves. Like at a certain point, you just have to kind of accept that. So yeah, but Josh, what, what I think. There's no but. This is everything no, no, I said there is there factual. Is There's no but. There, a hundred percent. But all the you same, you could pivot it to something the, else. But what I said is ironclad. Okay, but when something's trading at this kind of multiple, and I will always argue with you, and you know that I will always argue with you all the time on the fact that valuation matters. And frankly, it matters way more at the top when something's up like to some stratospheric nosebleed level and can collapse 90%. Like at least when you have this producing $2 of earnings and trading at $26 a share, like you have a really serious bottom on that. And all you need is a tiny bit of multiple expansion here. You don't need it to get to anything crazy. You don't need it to get to NVIDIA's, NVIDIA's um, 50 times earnings. You don't need that. You need so little to go right here to have a meaningful return on the share price. So very little could go right and you could have plus 20%, plus 50%, which in this kind of market, I'm going to take all day long. All right. Well, we'll, we'll make that your last word. Yay. Uh, Steve Kovac, <laughs> you have a market flash for us. What do you have for us? I sure do, Scott. Yeah, take a look at shares of Dexcom right now falling about 3% on this headline coming out of Bloomberg that Apple has reached a new breakthrough on glucose and blood sugar monitoring technology. Presumably, that would be implemented in the Apple Watch. Shares are down. Look at Dexcom, about 3%. Apple not really reacting to this news. But look, Scott, this if we zoom out a little bit, Apple has been trying to put more of this health monitoring technology. Since before they even launched the Apple Watch, there's been talk uh, since the early days about putting blood pressure and glucose monitoring and all those kind of health uh, gadget fitness uh, ideas into the Apple Watch. So this is just the latest. According to this report, they've been working on this technology for over a decade, and it sounds like they've kind of gotten it to the point, according to this report, where they can start implementing it in some of their products. And you can see how Dexcom's reacting there. They make gadgets that you can sync with your phone and check your glucose levels and things like that, Scott. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Steve Kovac, thank you very much. You Thanks it. for bringing that to us. Mike Santoli is next with his midday word. And keep sending us your trades. The committee is going to grade them. Email us. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. We're back after this. We are back with our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, here for his midday word. Bullard talks and the market yeah. yawns. 
to a degree. I say yawns. Yawns, but also waits, obviously, for uh, for the Fed minutes. I mean, Bullard, I think, kind of set the bar at a certain level of hawkishness last week, did not meet it uh, today. So I think it's really about also just the market-based yields having, you know, gotten a little stretched, as we talked about yesterday, backing off a little bit. It looks like it could be, you know, yesterday a bit of a shakeout like that mid-December one, uh, which we saw. And, you know, every time the stock market gets kind of laser fixated on yields and every tick and that's all that matters and where mm-hmm. it's going to go we're going to chase them i always have to bring it back to okay we traded at the s p 4000 where we are right now may 9th of last year where was the 10-year may 9th of last year 308 uh the fed funds was under one percent so in other words it matters a lot it matters in the moment it matters for what it means in terms of fed policy and whether they have to get very restrictive but it isn't some kind of clockwork, intricate relationship that one level of yields has to equate to a certain uh, valuation of stocks. I would love your opinion as well. Speaking of things that matter, NVIDIA tonight, yeah. earnings and overtime, just given where that stock has gone, where the NASDAQ ha- has gone to. What do you yeah, think? I think it's a good test for, you know, the hotter money that made its way into the market and now has maybe had a little bit of a rethink uh, in the last couple of weeks. So it matters a lot. Look, there's only six other companies as big as NVIDIA right now in this market, mm-hmm. over half a trillion dollars. So it matters on that level. And then I just think it's about growth sentiment and the kind of fellow travelers to, Net, to NVIDIA in terms of the kind of stocks that perform with it, Net, Tesla being one of them. Yeah. I mean, the timing, right, is, is especially interesting just given where we are, sure. as, as you said. We'll see you in closing, Bell. Right, yeah. All right, we'll see you in the market zone. Up next, grade my trade. You can send an email, askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us. We're back after this. We have a stock alert for you. It is dear because the company just announced just a few moments ago it is raising its dividend by five cents to $1.25. So we'll follow that story, which just happens to be Jimmy, your grade my trade from Fred Hausch, who says I bought deer a year ago. All right. At three ninety a share. What should I do now? Add more sell. What do you think? You own the stock. I do own the stock. Fred, I think everything's going right for Deere. I mean, what, what I can't find a wart on this name. Uh, the valuation is very good. This is a great company. You saw the earnings report last week, which was terrific. And yet you're getting this at something like 13 times forward earnings. Uh, we know that with what's going on in Ukraine, we're going to have to be planting a lot of replacement crops for Europe's breadbasket, and that's going to inure to Deere's benefit. So I just I struggle to find something wrong with this stock. I can't. You get an A for that trade. All right. Good stuff. Thank you for that trade. Thank you for that grade. Finals are next. Got a big closing bell today at 3 o'clock Eastern time with that man right there, Jim Chanos. We'll talk about his latest shorts. We'll talk about the market. Maybe we'll get something new from him. You know he's going to react to Coinbase, too, so you don't want to miss that. Sally Krawcheck's going to join me as well of Elvest. Can't wait for that. And NVIDIA, obviously. Going to walk you right up to NVIDIA's big earnings report in overtime. Jenny has some new moves we need to get into as well before we do uh, final trades. So you bought more Devon. Right. Right. And you sold Navient. Right. So first, Devon reported last week and the stock got shellacked. Meanwhile, they said that they've got a five and a half percent. Um, they're going to earn five and a half dollars a share in free cash flow. So I'm like, all right, you've got something that's a 10 percent free cash flow yield. They're paying half of that out. So a five percent dividend yield going forward. 
really compelling. So for accounts that didn't already own it or were underweight, we added Devin. Then we sold Navient, and this references back to the beginning of the show when we were talking about like, what do you do with this market that's range bound? You sell things that are overpriced. We bought Navient two years ago, um, actually 18, then added to it in 20 for $7 a share. Now mm -hmm. it's trading at three and a half times, 10 times multiple. All right, thank you. All right, Pharma Jim, final trade, what you got? Raytheon, looks like it's gonna support both Airbus and Boeing production increases. Okay, Josh Brown. Starbucks, don't drink cups of olive oil, you idiots. <laughs> Jenny, quick, final question. Madam, 6.2% yield. All right, and Joey. Josh mentioned Ingersoll Rand. It's a holding in Joe T. Okay, good stuff. I'll see you on Closing Bell again with Jim Chanos. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.